0: films all at the same time from a trip Mm. to the moon (laughs) or one by one i guess i don't know from a trip to the moon to parasite with a few exceptions like woody allen i don't even know who that is
1: fuck Uh, fuck Fuck woody allen he makes me you don't say expletives
2: heck him to heck that man that was
0: like the opposite of the only other time i've done
1: said you don't You don't need to know who Woody Allen is because he's influential enough that there are so many Woody Allen rip You you can get the entirety of Woody Allen's oeuvre just by watching oeuvre, oeuvre, oeuvre. Oeuvre. How have you heard that word pronounced?
2: (laughs) No, that sounds like fake words.
1: No, it's 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 a a body of words. It's a real word. It's French. Yeah, because all pretentious things are French. twice in writing my thesis
3: on oh. kurosawa because i'm about conscious. Wow. and i stole it from mcqueen i'll be honest my professor um but but yeah you know that's that's about as good an intro as i think we've ever had on this podcast i, okay. I guess so, i feel like the only so thank time, you for that
0: the only other time i did it i was like i think really overly dramatic and bombastic with it and this time i was like oh, hi, that was fun podcast.
3: too i enjoyed
1: it that time But (laughs) anyway, it fits so well. That nice, chill intro, I guess so, fits these 12 (laughs) angry men. They're just so angry. They're yelling at each other. Mm. Come on. Uh, The way we're uh, doing this
3: podcast is making me one of them angry men.
0: (laughs) Technical difficulties are hard. It's fun.
3: That's it. I'm... I'm I'm somehow growing chest hair from this, <gasps> and I'm getting mad. It's it's a horrifying experience.
2: Wow! This mm. this
3: podcast is literally f- forcing force feeding me testosterone <laughs> or something. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes, I mean um, we didn't even introduce ourselves yet. I guess do it no. now. Do it um, now. Oh
2: yeah,
0: it's still. early.
3: I'm uh Toferki. Mm-hmm.
2: oh my gosh tofurkey tofurkey yeah the only time i've had tofurkey was things? was during the eclipse and mm-hmm. we stayed at this orchard and they fed us like fresh fruit and tofurkey for breakfast and it was the oh. most magical thing ever nice what's well, so wow. sweet
3: that that actually sounds kind of incredible
2: it was really <laughs> incredible and then we saw the eclipse and we were like wow <laughs> um so yeah, I'm Anna, not Hannah, still a palindrome, but uh, <laughs> with no H's, except I have an H in my last name. So I guess I, I can't say that I have no H's.
0: One
2: H. Anna with one H. Anna with one H is my name.
0: You are accepted, I suppose. That works. You are valid.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
0: I'm Hunter.
1: S- still. Hunter okay Hunter you are valid And I'm Aiden Wow so valid Thank you I mean so let's let's talk about these sweaty boys shall we these Do these dozen sweaty lads Oh wait
2: these sweaty boys <laughs> oh, I just would like let's to say
3: talk about these sweaty boys
2: that like I don't know the movie partly makes me so uncomfortable because I don't like when when there's like a lot of sweat in movies it just makes me uncomfy so i always that just get awesome. i mean it's part of the point of the film is that you get uncomfy at the climax when everyone is just like sweating but it just i just i just feel gross
3: that's fair i don't like it either they're very they're very sweaty
1: yeah well you you will be happy to know that 1957's 12 Angry Men is the sweatiest 12 Angry Men. <laughs> they are the wettest men. The rest of the men, bone dry. Oh, wow. The rest of the men are pretty oh. dry. The, the The Friedkin men, they get a bit damp, but the rest of the men just don't get there. Um, I, I mean, the Russian men have a whole allegory about it. I hate hate that we're rating
2: films on how sweaty the (laughs) men
1: are. I mean, I have several lists ranking those Mm. films, but it's it's not... What would the
3: sweatiest best movie be?
1: Well, I can't. Okay. (laughs) While you think about that, to get it out of the way, this is about 12 Angry Men, 1957. I decided to watch half a dozen adaptations of 12 Angry Men because I thought it would give me a greater... uh, Perspective on how the Sydney Lumet uses cinematography in the thing, and instead, I just, I, I just drove myself crazy. So I'm not going to be very useful this episode.
2: Uh, this is one, as I alluded to last episode. This is one of my top movies that I think every human being should watch mm-hmm. as, like, a teenager, I guess, because um, I think it's so important to think about your biases and even just to realize that your biases are affecting the way that you think. And so, especially, oh, I just turned off my graph, juror number, um, (laughs) juror number 10 Mm -hmm. and how he like goes the whole movie, like operating on this bias. And he's the last person to realize that he is biased. And I just think it's so important to like reflect on that and also how your background and the way that you were raised affects you. And also how, like your own issues that are completely separate from what's at hand affect you. So like this guy, like his son had hurt him or no, that was number three. Number three was the one who, Mm -hmm. um, his son had hurt him. And so he was like, all sons are bad. So I don't know. I just think it's really valuable in that it's a reminder to, I guess, like check your biases. Um,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And also just the way that you go about thinking through a problem. I don't know. I just think it's really important to watch and to watch often.
3: Mm. Okay. True. It's good. Yes, I definitely agree. I think that's the part of the movie that brings it from being just, you know, incredibly entertaining and engaging and well-directed and all of the, you know, all of the above that we, we would say for any of these films and makes it one of the more important and special films on this list um is just yeah that that kind of thematic like i guess discussion of perception and the way that it is so dramatically affected by experiences and and things that we aren't really constantly paying attention to but that it it has you know within these 12 people who are all you know cis white men it still manages to show a very very wide range of these different kinds of biases and these different degrees to which we let our perception affect things um everything from like the i want to get out of here and go to a baseball game <laughs> to just you know the full-on like i'm just actually incredibly racist and think that it doesn't matter what this person is saying or what, what's actually happening or what the circumstances are they mm-hmm. deserve to be put to death um there, there's just such a wide range of these different views and that they're all delivered with a surprising amount of subtlety throughout the film um, yeah. is mm-hmm. is is pretty bonkers, pretty incredible, just fantastic writing. And also, I mean, is something that I did a bit more reading into as, you know, Sidney Lumet, uh, reading into him as a director is just that he's known for getting just like incredible performances out of everybody. I mean, this this movie is is perfect for Sidney Lumet in that sense, because if any movie could benefit from having just like pitch-perfect performances, this movie mm-hmm. really does. Yeah,
2: well, I think the other thing going off of the like director note is the cinematography, which is something that I specifically looked at and how um, yeah. throughout the course of the movie, like the camera angle changes, and that's just like a literal, physical, tangible thing that changes to create tension. And so, um, like the first third is eye level, the second third. Um, Oh, no, the first third is above eye level, second third is at eye level, and the last third is below eye level, Um, and just, like, the way that he uses camera angles to create this, like, building tension. I mean, when you watch the movie, it gets tense, and, like, halfway through, a third of the way through, like, I don't know, I get really tense feeling, even though I know the ending, I still, like, get in that tension, and so just, like, masterfully directed and designed in that way that, like, even the camera angle um, creates this claustrophobia
1: yeah it just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sucks you Mm -hmm. in like Mm -hmm. about uh halfway through where uh every time i've seen this film at the beginning i start by like being like oh yeah this is like a good movie i like this movie it's like Kind of slow and pace, and about halfway through, I forget that I'm watching a movie, and I'm just like mm-hmm. fist pumping when like the racist guy, like everyone walks away from him. Oh, it's so good, and you're just like ah oh, yes, mm-hmm. and every mm-hmm. time they like convince a new person, you're like you did it,
0: yeah, you did mm-hmm. it, yay, woo. Mm-hmm.
1: And it never feels
3: trivial. Like yeah. somehow there's twelve people in an hour and a half that like have to, or eleven people that have to change their minds, mm-hmm. and yeah. There's never like a just like, oh, well, three guys just decided to change their mind willy-nilly just to kind of move the pacing Mm -hmm. along. Like somehow that all just continues to work. And every time it feels like you're making progress and like you've earned that progress as if you're like participating in this.
1: And the thing that's so cool about this movie is the way that it takes you on that journey. Because, okay, I don't know about anyone else here, but the thing that I noticed, especially upon this rewatch... Uh, Every time I go into the movie, I begin thinking that juror number one, like the foreman, is the protagonist (laughs) because the way that the camera is, it's framing him in shots a lot. Mm -hmm. And then juror number eight comes in and slowly takes the spotlight. And as he's winning the other people at the table around, he's also winning the perspective of the film (laughs) to his perspective. And that's something that really got just thrown Into uh, like a relief when I was watching other adaptations of this because other adaptations, it's very noticeable when they start looking down the table from the perspective of juror number eight. They don't start following juror number one. They start following juror number eight, and you don't get that that narrative perspective of a shift in perspective where the audience and the camera is shifting perspectives and slowly making up its mind about what these characters are like what side you're being swayed toward by these characters Hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm.
3: that's yeah that's a very good point Hmm. I had never really considered that but like mm-hmm. yeah at first every time I watch it I I start by like at, at the very least being like well oh, I think juror number one is my favorite character I think juror number one is is the person who like seems to have everything kind of in charge and whatever and I, I spend all of my time kind of focusing on one specific character and then yeah, yeah very quickly like it, it kind of transfers um and it yeah no, that does like provide a lot more of a that that sense of this guy's Uh, kind of convincing everybody around him um, because he's also kind of convinced you to pay attention to him to begin with when at first he's very much Mm -hmm. kind of
1: off in the distance. Well, and he's one of the last few people to change their vote from guilty to not guilty. Uh, I realized last week that uh, you person who has a new name this week that I can't remember. Uh, Tofurky. Tofurky. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that tofurkey brought up can't believe this week, we might know want my name. A, a plot, a plot summary, uh, just to let people True. like get this movie because it's the famous movie. It is a very famous movie, but a lot of people, especially now, might not have seen it. They might have seen a bunch True. of things that like ape the elements of it. I remember when I was a kid, I listened to like this episode of Adventures in Odyssey, like this mm-hmm. radio Christian radio broadcast show, mm-hmm. and they did a whole oh, yeah. episode like that was a, a uh, like a parody of Twelve Angry Men, and it is legit the best episode that like show ever released. Hmm.
0: <laughs> interesting,
1: but uh, interesting.
3: Hmm. Um, does anybody
1: have any like written summary or I, I can I can give a plot breakdown, but okay yeah sure go ahead I I, I so yeah so uh it, there is a jury trial a murder trial that's taking place we start off in the courtroom hearing a p- brief breakdown of that this is a very important decision this young man who's 18 years old has been uh, arrested and suspected of killing his father in their apartment the the all of the information of the trial is given to us as the members of the jury deliberate on whether or not this young man is innocent. They all go back to the jury room. The entirety of the rest of the movie takes place in the jury room and the adjoining bathroom. And they begin by taking one vote. And one man, juror number eight, is the sole person who believes that this young man might be innocent. And slowly over the course of the 97 minutes of this movie, every single one of the members of the jury come around to the other side.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That it's works. That's
0: good. Cool. It's good and fun. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Yes. So it is a very simple concept, um, and it's a pretty short movie, uh, and it's also pretty much it's almost just a one room movie there, you know, there's a scene in the bathroom and Mm -hmm. there's the scene in the courtroom. And then the final scene is outside of the courtroom. But for the most part, it is a, it is a one location drama. Um, And what Mm -hmm. strikes me about this in comparison to a bunch of other one-room dramas is that it does not feel like it. I am never thinking about like, wow, how are they keeping it interesting? Or, or, you know, how, how does this feel like it's a full movie in a, in a, in a one-room setting i just never think about the fact that it's in a one-room setting until i finish the <laughs> movie and they're leaving and i'm like oh like somehow uh Lume's camera movements and the writing and the performances are just just everything and it it doesn't feel like it needs any change of setting it doesn't need a break it just it just runs
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: you can have movies that are very very confined I, I mean i've seen stuff that's more confined than this like i always think of uh lock that, uh mm. the Tom Hardy movie yeah. where it's, the whole movie is just him like having phone conversations with people while he's driving and it's like the greatest thing ever. So like yeah, it's it's hard to do, I think. Like you've gotta have just great writing, And, and yeah, like you said, performances and stuff to carry that kind of thing. But they nailed it here for sure.
2: I think yeah. part of the reason why it works, part of it is that he knows like he knows that the words are enough and I feel like sometimes people when there's a connection that they've made, they try and spell it out way too clearly, but then you almost lose the connection. This is kind of something we talked about in Seventh Seal and I've been thinking about is like, if you try too hard to define something that it kind of loses its mystery. So like in the same way, um, I don't know, like if he had tried to spell it out too clearly that like, for example, the racist guy, if he had given him like a racist, like a clothing with a racist slogan on it or something like that. So it would be like obvious from the beginning that this man had those opinions then that wouldn't have been as impactful i think as an audience because you just like almost discount it you're like oh there's the racist guy but like you don't realize and in some ways he doesn't realize until the end that that that's what his bias is so i think that's something that's beautiful about this movie is that he leaves it up to the audience to figure it out and i think he does that in the filming in that like it is just the empty room and the words keeps you keep you interesting and also I was reading about the rehearsal schedule which did more because Sidney Lumet had some theater experience he did more like theater type rehearsals where they just rehearse for hours and hours like with no cameras just like run your lines and I think that really helped the actors know where they are like even though they didn't film it in order obviously but like I think that really helped the actors know who they were and what story they were trying to tell so that it stayed interesting, even though like the room itself is the most boring room on earth. Your mind is engaged with the words and the, the actors. So I think that's just another credit to Sidney Lume and the, the actors themselves that like, like Tofurky was eloquently reflecting on that this movie knows to just focus on words
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well and a lot of that comes down to the hallmarks of like a great theatrical script by uh, reginald rose which uh i think all of us went into this assuming that this was adapted from a play when it wasn't the play was adapted from this it was originally a teleplay a 50-minute teleplay put on on cbs with a Mediocre cast, uh, there are two members of the cast that actually return, um, which is, uh, juror number, uh, which ones are they? Give me a sec. Uh, juror number 10, the old guy, and, um, juror number, um, not, juror number nine and juror number 11 are the only two that return from the teleplay. Uh, the old guy and the uh, guy with the mustache that nobody else seems uh, to think is yeah. as hot as I am. I do. <laughs> uh, it's because he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not hot. No,
2: none he's of these. He's really no.
1: He's really <laughs> sweet. He has that like emotional draw to him. I. I guess I have particular taste. Yes, you do. Whatever. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. But the the thing that makes this such a great script, and the reason why it's been adapted into a play, and is continuing to be done, there's like a really cool adaptation of it in a Lebanese prison in like the 2010s. Yeah, it's done by like a bunch of Lebanese prisoners. It's like real cool. There's a cool documentary on it. Interesting. But the the reason that hits home is that it slowly it, it's it's every single like good piece of theater. Is a mystery where you're slowly revealing pieces about these characters and little throwaway lines, and then the audience, you can catch it. And when you catch one of those things, you're like, oh, I found something out that is so engaging. It's so enthralling. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're like in an Agatha Christie murder mystery. And you're like, Did he just slip up? Did he just just give away the game there? Yeah, you, you know, and, and you can catch all those little pieces, and those it's never fully spelled out you can fully spell things out the the more complex your overall story is the more simple a lot of the elements have to be so that the audience doesn't get overwhelmed but in a space this small this confined you can make it as complicated and as like just as small as you want it to be and that's what makes it so cool yeah Mm. yeah like it's there's not like a lot of
0: new information that's added throughout the course of the movie. Like for the most part, it's just basically dealing with the same set of facts that they start off talking about, but like, they just kind of zoom in on different aspects as they go. And then discussing like, does that make sense? Can we really logically put all of our faith into that story or just thinking like, Oh wait, I noticed something back then. So that doesn't make sense. And just doing that yeah. over and over again to try and convince everyone
3: yeah, and I mean, I think that speaks to the subtlety of the writing to an extent because uh, it, it would be very easy to structure this being like, okay, well, let's go through the points one by one or something like that. Mm. And then, you know, it's just very easy to be like, okay, well, first, let's talk about, you know the the knife and then let's talk about this and let's talk about this, but the way that it's it's kind of bouncing back and forth between things like a natural conversation would not only brings you into mm-hmm. it more and reveals things in a more, you know dynamic and interesting way, but like just overall, just, just just, builds the mystery more, I think, when they, they bring back something else that they talked about previously and kind of shed new light on it.
1: Yeah.
2: The other thing I will say that, I mean, back to the, the one thing that I researched, which is kind of how it was filmed, they intentionally, and I, I put a, a graph of this, maybe we can share it. Um, somebody like fig- did a, like plotted on a graph the length of the shot like how long one take was Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. is almost an exponential decrease. So the beginning of the film, all of the shots are, are pretty long, like one, two minutes long. Um, and then towards the end, they get a lot faster when the, when the energy is building and when things are getting more intense. Mm-hmm. And that's another way that he kind of, like, draws you into, like, the realness of the conversation. And then, like, as the angle shifts down, the top shots get faster. And it just, like, the intensity builds with everything. And, like, it's so subtle. Like, I would never know to look for that. But once it was pointed out, I was like, oh, my gosh, that totally makes sense that, like, you're there and you're kind of meandering around. And then as things get intense, like, the shots get more intense.
1: It's the pace of the editing yeah i I keep having like certain cuts stuck in my head from the latter half where it suddenly just you have a jarring edit uh but it the the thing that this is just blows my mind every time i watch it is that the camera leads the actor's movements the camera moves just before the actor moves and so it's it's almost surreal at points where a shot will start on a certain character and will move and in other movies it's just like oh yeah so it's just to get some movement in the reason that's starting on that person is just to get perspective or whatever mm-hmm. but by the end of that shot that character is the person who is like in control at that moment yeah. like uh, as drawer number 3 like is about to stand up the camera moves up and he stands up into it and it pans over to the right and he walks into it it just i love it so much so good <laughs> it's, ah! it's
3: incredibly surprising i mean here's one uh element that like i haven't brought up yet but that was like the main thing i took away from my research on sydney lemay is that this is his debut as a director um
1: uh, yeah which he did some television wow. work beforehand but this is his first right. film yeah
3: yeah but i mean that it that just that just blows my mind. I mean, sure, that's uh I think that makes it the fourth one that we've covered so far. The fourth uh directorial debut on this list in the first what, 29 uh episodes of The Greatest Movies of All Time. Um <laughs> yep. actually it's six if you include uh like co-directors uh debuts cuz mm. I think there's some some directors in Fantasia and uh, I can't remember what the, the other film was. Uh, I think the general um, where it, it was a, mm-hmm. a debut. Um, but but yeah I mean I so, yeah. for just the solo directorial stuff like it's very interesting to note these and and view these films together because they all tend to do, Things that we haven't really seen done quite as much before. I mean, Citizen Kane is obviously mm-hmm. the the prime example of this, where it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't know he'd come from theater as well. He had he had no clue how film really worked, and so he just experimented and was like, "I want to do this," and his people had to figure out how to do that. Um, it's very interesting, I, I guess. Uh, same with with something like The Night of the Hunter, um, and and The Maltese Falcon actually did something very similar to tr- Twelve Angry Men, in that it was very like heavily rehearsed and very thought out in and planned out and where everything went. So the, the shot went um, very quickly. It went very smoothly and you know uh, everybody had a good time and it it went under budget. Um, Similar, similar to this movie, but I I do think it's interesting that for the debuts, we're kind of seeing these directors a little bit more creative, um, have a little more like, sense of I can do something outside of the norm, but also planning every detail out, um, which is just obviously something that we don't tend to see with a lot of the other films. Like, I don't know, something like Gone with the Wind, or I, I, I go to Victor Fleming because, you know, thinking of Wizard of Oz as well are these movies that like there's so much going on and there's so much behind the scenes that's going wrong. And it's, it just kind of comes together in the edit. I mean, you can tell that these movies mm. and specifically 12 Angry Men is not a movie that comes together in the edit it's a movie no. that like is exactly very specifically the way it is. And that allows it to be so much more precise in what it's doing.
2: I think precise yeah. is a really good word to describe this movie. I think almost I would I, I see your Toy Story and I raise you or Toy Story 2 and I raise you twelve Angry Men as like the perfect precise movie. <laughs> True. Yes.
1: <Yeah. laughs> twelve Angry Men is better than Toy Story. Toy Story, the thing that Toy Story 2 brings up for me is uh, where it really like conflicts with this. Both of them are like just very meticulously paced, but whereas Toy Story 2 doesn't have any breathing room, one thing that really stands out about 12 Angry Men is it takes its time, specifically in places even when it's in the midst of a building action— the bathroom scene yes. will come in, which is unique mm-hmm. to this version of 12 Angry Men. No other version of 12, 12 Angry Men actually has that bathroom scene, mm-hmm. mostly because the play that came out after this, because building a bathroom set would be hard. just incorporated a lot of the dialogue into the room, and a lot of movies and adaptations were working off of that. But the bathroom scene is just just a perfect just calm-before-the-storm moment where where they go in and everyone it just comes up to to juror number 8 and it's just like do you are you sure you want to do this are like they aren't on board yet and they're like what if are you, there, there's that line that that really struck me was um you know uh what what if uh you're like letting off uh what what well, what if he's guilty which in this version i think this and the original Teleplay are the only ones that have the death penalty on the table. The rest mm-hmm. of them don't, which I, I I think it's to like keep with the time because the death penalty became much less like broadly available, but like my little, you know, leftist self was just sitting there mm-hmm. thinking, so what if he's guilty? You, he's like 18. <laughs> don't murder him. Jeez. Uh mm-hmm. but it's it's there's so much in this film, just in the mindset of the characters and everything that is despite the fact that this film has been adapted all over the world, it feels in the mindset of like an American populace and a very masculine patriarchal american populace there mm-hmm. are this is like a display of the spectrum of american manhood yeah and that's another reason you know, why
2: i think this movie is important too is that like they're all men but some of them i don't know like their expressions of their masculinity are different and some of them to be completely honest i respect some of them more than others and the way that they express i mean obviously true. but like oh
3: yeah I don't know,
2: some of them I would not want my son or husband to try and imitate in their masculinity. You know, uh,
1: of course, and, and that's <laughs> y- like the the standout. Of course, Juror Number Three, who like uh, had his son gotten an argument and wasn't willing to continue it, and he's just yeah. like. That day I swore I'd make my son a man and I made him a man. But when he was 16, we had an argument. He punched me in the face and he hasn't talked to me for three years. And and, and you're just like, it's just, it's more of a critique of toxic masculinity than like, it's a harsher one than almost anything I've seen in like the last decade when it's really come up. Mm. Where it's someone who is just, just, somewhat consciously being incredibly self-destructive and not really being able to accept it until, th- like, through the arc of the show, that is his his main thing. He isn't willing to accept that this boy is innocent because he's seeing the boy as kind of a representative... He's tying all of his, uh, the baggage he has with his son to this young man, who he feels like stabbed him in the back the way that this boy supposedly did to his father.
2: Yeah.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
3: It's interesting. Cause it, it is a more harsh critique in some ways, but it's also maybe, um, a more, I, I don't know, arguably fair critique. Like it doesn't feel like it's setting up a straw man. And oh, no, even no. though I deal with, I, I agree with pretty much most critiques of toxic masculinity, Undoubtedly, sometimes they take a straw man of just like objectively the worst Mm -hmm. man Um, Which I mean (laughs) sure we probably all know a few people who are like that But like taking the absolute worst idea of a man the worst representation of a man And then fighting that is a lot easier than doing what 12 angry Mun does here Which stands out to me particularly with juror number 10? um, as somebody Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. when everybody turns their back on him he kind of recognizes his bias and is distraught over it. Um,
0: yeah, which probably is my favorite scene.
3: It's <laughs> incredible. It's also something that you don't expect. Or at least I don't expect mm-hmm. from a, a thing, something like this. I, I expect maybe people to be like, "Oh, shut up, you! You know, you racist asshole!" And then and then yeah. move on. And then he's just mad and like you. I, right. I would like, expect that somebody like that would would never recognize their bias and just say, "Well, the whole world is wrong." um, and move Mm -hmm. on. But, but what 12 angry men does is almost kind of present like a semi redemption arc for like pretty much all of the characters in this film. And not in the sense that they become great people by the end of the play, but that they're able to recognize where they're being limited. And it just shows this amount of like, wow, like this is kind of where masculinity This is where society even can go, um, with, with just kind of a, a simple, simple condemnation and and a simple recognition of what's happening, you know, obviously followed by effort to change that rather than just like, okay, you know, kill all men. Like I could like, there's an extent to which aesthetically <laughs> yeah. I can get behind <laughs> yeah. that. Um, but I mean, yeah, it doesn't ultimately, I, ultimately solve the problem. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's kind of like at the base of the whole story. like, you know, having all of these guys being like, okay, come to a unanimous decision, guilty or not guilty. And the whole point that like, you know, 11 of these guys are just like, they kind of accept this sort of bloodthirsty decision of like, yes, from what we've heard, it's okay to kill this person who is, you know, just now like not a child anymore. And then having only one person who is like, why are we not begging for a reason to spare this person's life which is just yeah kind of how it would i would hope it should be and so then yeah Mm -hmm. just using the whole movie and all these conversations to just be like why not choose the merciful kind way just trying to find that find a reason to doubt instead of just being like yep kill him
1: that's something very unique to this original version of the story where (laughs) the first person who's a detractor isn't a detractor because they Think that the facts are necessarily like saying that the guy's innocent the the initial thing that juror number eight just goes into saying is i i'm not i i'm i can't vote for this because me voting i there are 11 people voting to like to spare this boy no mercy i can't i can't bring myself to 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 do that to someone else unless i'm completely sure Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i i just want to talk it just starts like that and then as they talk they actually wind up noticing a lot of holes or a lot of inconsistencies in the pieces of evidence yeah and it's it's nothing to they don't ever again like they don't present new evidence it's not
0: getting to the point where they're like oh well it's definitely not true what the people presented it's
1: just like is there a reason that it might not be entirely true, with, with the the exception <laughs> of the knife, which is the only yeah, piece true. of like new evidence that's yeah. brought forward. Which is just like a, like a, a just a moment in. It's just like the first moment that just just gets you, at least first month that gets me, mm-hmm. where they like say this is a very unique knife, and then he randomly the just takes the knife out of his pocket, stabs in the table, and he's like, "I found this at a shop on the boys' street last night," because it's kind of irking me this isn't a unique knife.
2: Mm -hmm. I have a question that I, I mean, we can kind of just, maybe I leave you with this and think about it, but um, I was reading and apparently there's a Japanese version of this story, but it's the opposite where the 12 jurors go into the room and everyone says not guilty, except for one that says guilty. Hmm. And by the end of the film, everyone says guilty. Hmm. And I've, I don't know I've been thinking like when when you have the story where everyone says guilty except for one man you argue points of morality and um, like are we sure that this person is and like I don't know you can kind of think about mercy but what is the conundrum when it's the opposite and I, I don't know I've just been kind of thinking about like man what an interesting story to tell where people do they go into it ready to show mercy and by the end of it decide that that's not what the moral option would be. I don't know. I guess it's just something that I've been thinking about. I'm taking a class that we're talking a lot about morality and like, when, like, if you sometimes have to choose an immoral option, that like, I don't know, the idea that you might sometime need to choose between two immoral options. I don't know. It's it's kind of a half-formed thought, but I just thought that was an interesting take on the story that it would it would go the opposite
1: well and that's interesting that is one of the two versions of this that i was not able to find online uh leading up to this uh that would be the the japanese version that was done i believe in the 80s and then the uh, 2010s version done in china called 12 citizens uh which was in done in 2014
2: 12 citizens Uh, that's so on brand
1: for China yep it's it's very (laughs) on brand uh the the other so almost all of the versions that I saw basically keep the same story there's a version done in India in 2016 which is just nuts and absolutely insane (laughs) and Terrible! It's just a mix mash of just stylistic elements drawn from like Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright movies with no rhyme or reason behind them, and Bollywood musical numbers too, I guess. Mm-hmm. But there was another version done in 2007, a Russian readaptation, just called Twelve. And the thing that that changes well, a lot changes because it, it's a change in context. Uh, the Russian judicial system doesn't have like the same jury process, so they have to come to the decision in the room to give the idea of the uh, r- reasonable doubt, like put that on the table and make that a thing hmm. within the context of the story. But the the most striking elements of the story is the foreman, jury number one, once they all, everyone else agrees that he is that he is not guilty. He he sends a, everyone goes to leave and he's like you haven't heard my vote vo- vote yet. And they're like what's your vote? And he's like I, d- I would vote guilty. Hmm. They're like why would you vote guilty? He's like I I think you're correct. I think that that he didn't commit the crime, but hmm. the people who did commit the crime are out there and they are depending because in this one it's like a state conspiracy that's that's sort of covering it up um they are depending on him getting off uh him p- being put in j- jail to kind of cover their tracks and if we acquit him he's going to die they're going to kill him uh so that he doesn't like give uh any more information about where they are and he's going to live longer in prison than he ever will on the street huh. and that's that's like a final argument in there, uh and that's you know kind of a dark one. I think most of the people wind up dying in the civil war at the end of that one it's a Whoa. it's kind of a take huh. um yeah uh but th- there are a lot of different this setup has so many moral questions in in it there is so much just room for your mind to go and you can take it in completely different places where you're like what what it's, it's, it's a context to examine philosophy it's, it's like a Socratic forum of a film uh, you know on a very specific issue just taking a bunch of people's different perspectives and just, just examining them
0: I like it. I like how it can be different in the different versions.
1: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Tofurky uh just dropped out, I'm assuming because of your yes previous engagements. Yes. Indeed, it's okay. Do do we have any any thoughts that we need to discuss? I'm just trying to think.
0: Uh my my only thought that I had a moment ago, this feels kind of half formed, but kind of along with I guess more with what Anna was saying previously, but there's like having the thought of like the people who are fighting for the, the guilty verdict in, in the, the, the movie in particular that we were mm. talking about, <laughs> Um just having thinking of that too, being like, it makes sense to have someone fighting for the guilty verdict, I guess. And obviously it, you know, makes sense for narrative conflict to have some people with their heels dug in on the opposite mm. side. But like, i feel like it's like oh it makes sense because it's like if you had someone who like really legitimately thought that this guy is a is a a murderer Mm. you probably would feel like it's your duty to do something about that and hold on to the guilty verdict and being like i guess maybe perhaps more exemplified by like juror number four who seems mm, relatively bias free compared to number three i guess he's just like Just because the reason and logic. Yeah, like he seems more like I just, you know, I trust the eyewitnesses until he finds out. You know, the point that the eyewitnesses are more unreliable than he might have thought. Which is like I just I guess I just see that being like
1: it makes sense, I guess. There are only most of the things that are added from the original teleplay to this are just more. Most of the details are the same. One of the things that they changed from the original teleplay is that they made the the person uh juror number four have glasses. Hmm. Uh for you know, the whole thing where they reveal that, oh yeah, the uh the the uh the woman who's who's testifying was wearing glasses and if hmm. she just looked over in the middle of the night, she wouldn't have been wearing glasses. As yeah. you can see the little marks there. Originally that was given to juror number one hmm. and it works so much better where it's, it's a bit of a, a convenience where you take the plot and you're like, oh, the thing that this character specifically needs to learn applies to this character. And you're like, okay, that's a bit of a, a coincidence that, oh, it's juror number four who's wearing the glasses and would be able to to f- figure out that, oh yeah, the woman was wearing glasses because of the little impressions next to her nose. But at the same time, that those sort of like narrative coincidences that that you have are what what make it work I hate cinema sensing movies (laughs) that whole thing and I've hated it for a while because it's pointing out those narrative coincidences those, those things that the writers put in there because it makes the story more powerful and more and saying that because it is not st- strictly realistic, it is necessarily n- bad in some nebulous sense, which is just <laughs> the most like 2010s film nerd thing ever. <laughs> We're gonna get so many bad movies made by 2010s film nerds. I'm Man. not looking forward to it, <laughs> but on the plus side, Foreign cinema is doing pretty great right now, so yeah. I can just watch South Korean movies, and I don't have to care. Heck yeah! <laughs> uh,
0: uh, all, good. all
1: good. Also, on that note, uh, a Bra- a Brazilian film that came out a couple years ago, uh, Baccarat, It is a uh, a. An- uh, it reminded me of this film because both of them have that same sort of uh, writing-based mystery element to it Hmm. uh where the information is revealed slowly and there's still a bit of mystery and uncertainty towards the end of the story um and the only movies i have seen that have come out in like the last decade that are written like that are are not from america (laughs) american screenwriting just hasn't had that sort of like that texture to it in a while And I'm sure I have blind spots. I have many (laughs) blind spots, but I just haven't seen that as much in American cinema, whereas it is being used heavily in uh, Brazilian, South Korean, Japanese films. Mm -hmm. You know? It's kind of sad, but also kind of great because Mm -hmm. America shouldn't have, like, a monopoly on cultural capital regarding (laughs) film.
0: (laughs) For sure. Glad it's it's still out there. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything... With quite the same feeling that's come out lately. I don't know. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well Parasite has kind of similar writing, which yeah. we will in theory eventually we'll cover get on this to podcast. It later. Which is I think why everyone fell in love with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That and you know so solid. South Korean thrillers just mm-hmm. just going for it.
0: Well, I think we're probably going to need to wrap it up here soon. It's going cool. to be a little bit of a shorter one today. Uh, did anyone have any final points, final remarks on the movie?
2: I feel like my piece has been heard.
1: Indeed. Same. My piece has been more than heard. All good. All good. I have nice. talked for a while. <laughs> it was all good. We, I, 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 like I like this. I your info. This, this was chill. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, also, did you? Sydney Lumet wrote a book called Making Movies in, like, the oh. 90s, which I just found out is an Audible, and I'm so excited Ooh. Ooh. to start listening to it. Cool. Because, oh, my goodness, can that guy make movies? <laughs> oh, uh,
0: I did realize. I, I forgot that he directed uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which oh. I totally recommend. <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon. Super good.
1: Uh, Network. Um, did uh, other the original murder on the Orient Express. Hmm. He also, cool. Uh, cool. yeah, he also has directed like every single adaptation of a straight play <laughs> that has come out and been half decent. What? Like he did the Death Trap movie and the
0: <laughs> like. Cool,
1: s- so much.
0: Nice, busy guy. All right. And, well, check all that out. Uh, if you want to see more stuff from us i'll give you the short version you can just go to movieoverloadpod.com and you can find links to all the other relevant stuff Or you can just search for movie overload podcast and probably find us i think there's another thing called movie overload that's not us but just ignore that (laughs) uh and i'm gonna intro myself as we say at the end of every podcast uh baltimore that's like being hit in the head with a crowbar once a day
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) That's Baltimore for you. I feel like yeah. there's like a lot
0: of good lines, and there's like a lot of good lines in this movie, but like not a lot that like stand well on their own. Anyway.
1: Okay. That's because it's well written. There are no one-liners, there's just the script. <laughs> yep.
0: Okay, that's it. Bye.
2: Bye. Uh, The guy that's like, I'm just going to say something. Let's put it out on the porch and see if the cat picks it up. Yeah, That guy's my favorite because he says the stupidest things. Not the stupidest, but like the funniest things.
1: Funniest things guy. He's Uh, kind of charming.
2: I don't know. He's He's like, let's let's run it up the flagpole and see if people salute it. And I'm like, I like this man.
1: Is that juror number 12 or juror number 7? Uh, I would remember the dialogue better, wow. except it's twelve. The advertising exec.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. Y- yeah. Okay.
2: Okay, but which of the twelve is the hottest? Uh, I
1: th- I think it's it's I'm I mean I'm I'm biased, but uh number four. Like
2: Wait, to... hang on. I'm getting a cast list up so I can speak with some um.
1: Juror, juror four. Juror four and juror eleven are pretty good.
2: Juror four. This guy?
1: Oh, uh, oh yeah. No, Year I was five. thinking juror five, but uh, <laughs> he's he's not bad. He's, five? he's
2: he's. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. This guy. Classic. Yeah. Okay.
0: In some stuff. He's like really sweet. Guy it's uh,
1: it's, yeah, it's more yeah, yeah. character.
2: I like his character. He seems like a sweet man, but not my type.
3: Oh yeah. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think he's attractive. I he's, I, I think that read. twelve is attractive
2: number 11 oh number uh, 11 that's uh, number 11 yeah
3: no not 11 12 though Sir,
2: i do not understand your you guys hear me? men. yep yeah
1: She's really sweet okay I, I, but okay.
2: number 12 i kind of this guy yeah yeah. But,
3: yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about he's yeah he's uh, such is my audio an sound okay enough to an ass i think yeah. so
0: okay He's
3: okay. like an it's advertising exec. Anybody. How
1: could I'm... anyone ever be attracted to an advertising exam? <laughs> I don't they understand. He nice
2: face.
1: Do you see have nothing nice beyond the physical beauty? No.
2: Wow. Oh, guys, I found. I'm just gonna...
3: Beyond that. I'm definitely. I found a,
2: a grid that helps track oh, it boy, out. We should on, post yeah. this so because it's helpful.
1: Uh, juror eight, though, that's going on the Instagram, ostensibly the protagonist. I mean, yeah, I mean, I as far as physical attractiveness, he's he's pretty up there, I, I'd say, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I feel like if I was older, like if that if I married someone and that was how he looked when he was 40, I'd be like, this is okay, yeah, but you know, I wouldn't like, yeah. marry him right now, you know, you know what I'm saying,
3: We'd, wouldn't go for it right now yeah i think i think really like oh. i think i think in a weird way juror number one could win me over just because he's like genuinely charming enough and not horrifying you know what I mean uh-huh. but he's just enough that I would fun that you know i'd I'd fall for him,
1: but juror number five um, he grew up yeah. on the streets he's he's seen destruction all around him, but he doesn't let that get to he's, him.
2: it's true i, I mean appreciate. i i
1: appreciate
3: and uh just not as a romantic partner, you know.
2: Yeah.
3: Um yeah, geez, I don't know. I feel like the majority of them are
1: not attractive.
2: No. Okay. That's kind um, of the joke.
1: But it is five hundred <laughs> you know, times high- better number ten. Than the William Friedkid version from the night from nineteen ninety seven, mm. where all of the men are old. They're just mm. so old. They're so old. Um Interesting. I mean a few of them are kind of young. They have that guy uh who who's like Tony Soprano as juror oh. number uh 6. Huh. He's there. and uh, I think one of the guys from Seinfeld um. is like number s- 7. <laughs> Weird.